We're here with Mr. Richard Arrington, who is running for mayor of the city of Birmingham. He has a very strong human re re relations uh, stance, and he's really out trying to get those votes. Mr. Arrington, we're going to ask you a couple questions, and here's the first one. What are some of the things that you have planned to do if you're elected mayor of the city of Birmingham? Well, I certainly intend, first of all, to improve... <laughs> Oh, I had never intended to be mayor. That even when I was on the council, I was learning things, but you know, that was just a part-time job. That's Richard Arrington, scientist, academic, sort of a geek, some would say. I had come back to Miles College after finishing my work uh, in in biology, and uh, I had done something. I had been a I got to be a National Science Foundation research fellow, which took me to several places trying to update my learning. You studied medicine and beetles and radiation? I, I was in medical school at Iowa State University. I was studying radiation biology at medical school as a research fellow in the foundation. And then I was at Washington University in St. Louis studying molecular biology, just trying to get updated in one other school. He never planned to run for political office. As I said, you know, I had never been out marching, protesting. I had been teaching. I still don't know why, even to this day, why the Miles College students who came to me, to my office one day, 2121 building, to see me, and they really came in because they wanted me to run for mayor. And I just said, oh, no, I ain't going to do that. And I, I don't know why to this day they did. I mean, I had been dean at the college, so they knew me. But uh, it's, 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 it's interesting that they had a certain kind of image of perception. That was back at the dawn of the 1970s. Why him, he wanted to know. And I said, well, I don't know. I, t I tell you what, uh, why don't you come back tomorrow? Let me think about it. I was thinking they're not coming back. I was getting rid of them. But sure enough, the next day, about 4 or 5 o'clock, they were in my office again. And I just felt, you know, yeah, these people are working young folk. I would feel bad if I said no. So I said, oh, okay, I'll run. And, of course, they promised me that, you know, what all they would do, everything from buy me a suit to everything else. I mean, I kept it. None of which they did. It's good. <laughs> but anyway, that's how I got into it. I'm Roy S. Johnson. And I'm John Archibald, and this is Unjustifiable, the story of a young woman's death in Birmingham 40 years ago and how it motivated a community to demand the political power it had long been denied. Dick Arrington was raised in the Jim Crow South through the dawn of the civil rights movement, though he was not what we call a foot soldier. He didn't picket or protest or get knocked flat by fire hoses wielded by Bull Connor's henchmen. But he was aware. He knew how black people had long been kept off the voter rolls with complicated and confusing tests, arbitrary rulings by white boards of registrars, 
When he came of age, he made it a point to get on those voter rolls. I had grown up. I knew people had a tough time voting. I mean, you grew up black in Birmingham. I've seen folk, my family and all, study a long list of questions, hoping to go down to the board. They registered to vote. The church was load the van up or the bus up, take them down there, and they'd fail the board exam. Church and community leaders, Arrington was part of them. They developed a sheet and passed it out to those who wanted to register, a study sheet, front and back, with arcane facts that might be asked on the poll test, like the number of courthouses in Alabama. We looked that up, by the way. I think the answer is 69. 67 counties and two courthouses in Jefferson County and St. Clair. But who really knows? The folks who didn't want blacks to vote could count annexes, closed courthouses, whatever they wanted. Whatever. They could do whatever they wanted. Anything to make it harder for blacks to vote, if not impossible. So I had seen people working, trying, you know, trying to get the right to vote. And all. I was even nervous about that myself. I went off to school. I wasn't old enough to vote when I went left, when I graduated from Miles College. And you had to be 21 to vote, and I was 20. So I went off to Michigan school, and I came home for Christmas, and I had just turned 21. And the first thing I wanted to do was to go down to the courthouse to register to vote, down to Jefferson County Courthouse. It just stayed on my mind. It was dawning for black people. It was humiliating to study and cram, even more humiliating to fail. It was something white people just didn't have to endure. So I boned up on the questions, both sides of the sheet, and I went down. I was just as nervous. I've got a college degree and working on a second degree at the time, and just as nervous as I can be. And I go to the courthouse and fill out the paper and the registrar, this was a woman, one of the registrars, there were three of them sitting in one of them, and she starts talking with me, you know, she asked, where well, you go to school? Just a regular conversation. And I'm trying to answer the questions and all, you know, and she's being very nice and so forth, and I'm just waiting for her to hit me with the questions. She never asked me. After she talks to me about five or ten minutes, she said, okay, raise your right hand. She swore me in, she never asked me a single question about it about the government or anything of that sort. It was just amazing. But they had that kind of power. By the summer of 1979 and the death of 20-year-old Benita Carter, Arrington had served two terms on the council and had earned a reputation in the black community for pointing out harassment and brutality by Birmingham police officers. Others had questioned the actions of the city cops, but never with Arrington's platform and his measured insistence. Now, Arrington still thought of Mayor David Vann as a friend and a mentor. They'd served on the council together, and Arrington's support helped Vann win the office in 1975. But Benita Carter's death was already changing everything. It quickly exposed the city's broad racial divide. While Vann and Arrington might have thought they understood each other, black and white citizens in Birmingham were still light years apart. Scott Douglas, now the head of Birmingham's Urban Ministries, worked for the Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth then as an investigator monitoring racial issues and transgressions across the Deep South. He saw that Arrington's voice resonated in the black community, even among those who had not been subjected to physical violence from police. So many still knew from experience that they were treated differently. Douglas did too. You know, I lived in West End at the time, and the atmosphere was one of, of frequent police stops. Like, uh, one of mine was, uh, I went to a stop sign, I stopped, I went over, and the police turned his lights and followed me since daytime. I said, sir, what did I do? Say, you ran that stop sign. 
<laughs> I said, no, I didn't. Uh, and, and the problem was that when I stopped, if you go to the stop sign to stop, you can't see oncoming traffic. So you gotta go about six feet past it, you're not in the street, so you can see oncoming traffic. So I challenged it in court. He told the judge that all four wheels didn't come to a stop. <laughs> and I, I replied back, if what amount on my car, one wheel stops, all of them tend to. <laughs> and the judge got mad. Anyway, I had to pay the fine in court costs. But there was a lot of harassment going on, especially in West End. So, so I mean, Bull Connor was long gone, but was this still Bull Connor's police department? This was still Bull Connor's police department. Uh, there was a lot of confidence in David Bann. Uh, he was not, uh, he had a reputation of being um, somewhat, um, um, supportive of the police department, despite whatever this was. Uh, Richard Arrington was a city councilman, and he was one everybody went to if they had a complaint about the police. He filed a lot of complaints as a city councilman. So there was a lot leading up to this moment. In there was a lot leading up to it, and it was like uh, Arrington was the go-to person, not the mayor, not you know, the police chief, but Arrington. Arrington had become the public face of his community's long, festering complaints against the police. City leaders and Chamber of Commerce types like to talk about how much progress had been made in the 16 years since Dr. King marched, and Connor turned the dogs and the fire hoses on young people, on children. Birmingham had moved forward, they bragged. In truth, in 1979, the city was still polarized by race, as it had been for decades. These days, it seems like the divide is all about political parties. But in those days, in Birmingham, it was all about black and white. White people often knew next to nothing about the issues important to black people because, in part, the media seldom contained positive portrayals of African Americans, and perhaps because most white people just didn't care to know. Richard Malk, now the chairman of the Jefferson County Democratic Party, and in 1979 the campaign manager for Van's re-election, had the difficult job of trying to build a biracial coalition across that divide. And back then, the Democratic Party, for this was a non partisan race, city council. So back then, you you didn't have Democrats and Republicans, although you did, not officially. You basically had black and white. You know, who's going to be the white candidate? Who's going to be the black candidate? Um, only a few years before, in 63, 64, you had the riots and the fire hoses. And I, I was 10 years old. And, you know, we didn't hear any of that stuff because it wasn't on the TV. And mom and daddy would turn the national TV off. So, so we really didn't know what was going on. Building a biracial coalition seemed impossible after Benita's death. Mark's boss, Van, had refused to fire George Sands, the officer who shot her on that hot Friday evening. Even after reports from an investigative committee said the officer had acted inappropriately. Residents expressed their anger in marches and meetings and threatened boycotts of local businesses. Van had counted most of the city's black leaders as friends or at least allies. He even tried once to march with protesters in a display of respect and commitment. Not surprisingly, it didn't play too well in black neighborhoods. Hell, it didn't play so well in white ones either. Van caught the devil from all sides, alienating those who had supported him in the past and making unlikely and unreliable at the polls allies of those who had never much liked him in the first place. A 
Apparently the police needed much better training in certain instances like this. But, it, you know, who, hindsight's always twenty twenty. And, and And David realized that, that Sands was not guilty of a gross act of violence. Uh, he actually did think the guy was armed in the car, and he was convinced that it would be wrong to fire him. Uh, he did suspend him without pay. Uh, Sands did come to our headquarters at one time and got, got some material to pass out. The, uh, the, the black community was just totally outraged. Um, and David had worked with them for many years with the community, uh, and they basically turned against him, except for a few. We worked and worked and worked, and, and David tried his best to make amends and get proper training in and did a lot of things. And we thought that we had everything under control. Uh, we did not. Arrington still maintains that in the beginning, he never was really politically ambitious, that he'd been ready to leave politics to pursue other things he was working on when his second term as council began to wind down. 1979 changed a lot of minds. Benita Carter changed it all. Oh, I had never intended to be me. I, that Even when I was on the council, I was learning things, but... You know, that was just a part-time job. I was, when I was on the council, I was working for, for the eight historically black colleges in Alabama. My job was to travel around. I was raising money for all eight of them and carrying that program. That was my major job. But I just got, you know, caught up in it. It was a surprise to some when Arrington decided in the wake of the shooting and Van's terminal failure to act to run for mayor of Birmingham, a city that had never elected a black mayor, and at the time, seemed like it might not ever. The decision was especially surprising to Van's camp. The day before, the night before, Dr. Arrington declared that he was a candidate. He was in the mayor's office with me, and he said, basically, I'm not. I'm going to this meeting with uh, Reverend Woods, and we're gonna, uh, I'm gonna tell them that I'm not gonna run and we're gonna support you. And we thought, yay, okay, this is it. We, 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 we've done what we needed to do. And I went home, went to bed. I wake up the next morning and Reverend Woods is standing by Dr. Arrington's side and they're announcing that they're running. So, boom. What do you do now? Well, I've got to split their vote somehow. There's more after the break. Hey, y'all. This is John Hammontree, executive producer of Reckon Radio and host of The Reckon Interview. If you're listening to Unjustifiable, there's a good chance you're curious about all things Southern. So I want to take a quick moment to recommend one of my favorite shows, Southbound, a podcast series from WFAE in Charlotte. The show is hosted by Tommy Tomlinson, and each episode he sits down for conversations with fascinating people from all over the South. Tommy is an award-winning journalist and author of the 2019 memoir, The Elephant in the Room. He's a brilliant mind with a deep curiosity for this place we call home, and he gets great guests. We had him on the Reckon interview last season, and I've been listening to his show ever since. Southbound is available wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're looking for an episode to get started, I highly recommend his conversation with Rhiannon Giddens. Thanks for listening.
So at 10 p.m. one night, Arrington isn't running. The very next morning, he is. Which in many ways was surprising to Arrington as well. Uh, David Vann was kind of a, uh, my mentor is the way I saw him. I don't think he saw it that way or other people saw it that way. I worked with him on the city council. I helped him get elected as mayor. And so I was a great David Vann fan and never thought I would be the one running against him uh, during his re-election effort. Given the city's past, the shooting of Benita Carter, and the tension that swelled every day thereafter, it was certainly not surprising that the mayoral race became, well, largely about race, especially in the city some call the Johannesburg of the South. The pool of candidates was charismatic, opinionated, and diverse, and each was not without their own controversies. Many would gain notoriety in the city and keep it for decades. There was the mayor, Van, and Arrington, the egghead city councilman. City councilman John Catapotis, a white man, jumped into the race with an advanced degree from Harvard and a razor wit. He argued, quote, a Ph.D. from Harvard is the minimum requirement for understanding, unquote, this new gun policy that Van proposed. To try to split black votes, Mock thought of Larry Langford, a charismatic black councilman who had made his name in Birmingham as a flamboyant television reporter, one of the first and most memorable in the city's history. As he would effectively do later in his career, Langford tried to appeal to both black and white voters with the kind of sound bites that rang of down-home wisdom, but offered little in the way of policy. If we're going to talk about addressing issues, we need to quit talking about this black-white issue. Every campaign in this city turns racial. I'm not going to trade in my Corvette and go back to Africa just like no white folks I know going back to Europe. We ought to address that and be done with that problem. I approached Larry and said, why don't you run for mayor? I mean, I don't, you going to let Arrington like, be the granddaddy of them all? Why don't you, why don't you jump in, Mr. Upstart? And uh, he did. This 1979 mayoral race was quite a show. Candidate Don Black was Grand Dragon of the Alabama Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. His campaign, as you might imagine, was openly racist, though it was covered seriously and matter-of-factly in the press. He argued that as long as the public officials are catering to the black vote, there can be no effective solution to the rising crime rate. Today, he runs a white supremacist neo-Nazi website. Frank Parsons was a white businessman the owner of the local travel agency. He played the white fears too, warning them at a civic club meeting that a large black voter turnout would shift the balance of power in the city to black people. We're gonna lose by default, he said to the Birmingham Exchange Club. We're gonna have a black mayor and I guarantee you I'm not for any of those blacks. Then we're gonna have a black police chief. There were seven candidates altogether, including one from the Socialist Workers Party. In many ways, Arrington was the least exciting of them all, perhaps with the exception of Van. Langford and Catapotis were larger-than-life personalities, masters of the soundbite and the political barb. Arrington, he spoke low and long and thoughtfully. Here's Scott Douglas again. I was worried at first, I supported Arrington, that Larry was on TV. Right. <laughs> and so a big personality. A big personality. Uh, but Arrington had filed over 200 complaints brought to him by citizens of police brutality uh, and stuff. And people knew that, you know, uh, and stuff. So he already had a connection with the community. And so Arrington really represented the um, um, the most besieged, uh, lowest income, was seen as being, being their advocate. And let's be frank, to whites in the Birmingham business community, 
he also seems safer than other black candidates and certainly preferable to a Klansman or a socialist. He was measured and careful. He'd been a college dean, after all. He had community and academic cred. He had eight years of taking on the police. It was a stark contrast to his friend Van, who still refused, for whatever reason, to take decisive action on George Sands. In the election, Van, the sitting mayor, the mastermind who had ousted Bull Connor, finished in fourth place. Fourth. Arrington finished first with 31,000 votes, but without an outright majority, and Parsons, the race-baiting businessman, squeaked ahead of Catapotis to reach the runoff. Klansman Don Black got just under 2,000 votes. Yeah, that's right. 2,000 people voted for a grand dragon of the KKK to become the mayor of Birmingham. He beat only the Socialist Workers' Party candidate. Van got about 11,000 votes. He won zero polling places in black neighborhoods. Zero. Van went to Arrington about 10.30 on the night of the election to congratulate him when the will of Birmingham voters had become clear. This is what Arrington said about it at the time. In the thoughtful, academic way, he answered questions throughout his term. We didn't talk very much. David apparently was a bit emotional at the time, and it moved me a bit because David is my friend and I'm a great admirer of David Van. We just shook hands and patted each other on the shoulder, and he made that statement and turned and left. That left Mark looking to the future. So um, David uh, congratulated Dick, and I started packing up the... um, office and Dick showed up at the office one day and offered me a job. The offer was a job with Arrington's campaign. He still had a runoff to win, but Mark had been offered another job as a federal law clerk in bankruptcy court and, well, couldn't mess around with politics anymore. He turned Arrington down, but Dick was persistent. And he said, well, listen, I need, you're the eastern area guy. I need you. And I said, well, what do you need me for? And he said, well, I can't, I can't play politics and be a law clerk, federal law clerk. Can't, can't do that. And he said, well, <clears throat> then get your mama and daddy to help. I've got to get 10% of the white vote in Eastlake and Roebuck and Huffman. And can you do that? And I said, well, I can't, but I'll see what I can do to help. And so I enlisted a lot of folks that were at, lived out there, a lot of white folks, uh, and our main goal was to say and show that Dick Arrington didn't have horns and a tail. And it wouldn't be the, the, the worst catastrophe uh, in the world for him to be elected. In a racially charged runoff between Arrington and Parsons, who of course pandered to white fear and warned white voters they'd end up with a black mayor and a black police chief, Arrington won by the slimmest of margins, by about 2,000 of the almost 88,000 votes cast to become the first black mayor in the city's history. Double-digit support from whites helped put him in the seat he would hold for 20 years until he simply decided it was time to walk away. Some 130 days after Benita Carter was killed, four months after that ad hoc committee found there was no cause to shoot her, and almost as long since David Van decided to reassign George Sands instead of discipline him, Richard Arrington became the first black mayor of Birmingham in front of Time and Newsweek and the world. President Jimmy Carter even called to congratulate Arrington the night he beat Parsons. Mock, who had been his opponent's campaign manager, was right there with him. He'll never forget it. Dick won. 
we got 15% of the white vote, which was very good. And uh, I was very fortunate that I was standing next to him at the Parliament House when he took the phone call from President Carter, congratulating him. And I was like, <laughs> I, was, I was about to wet my pants. Arrington knows the killing of Benita Carter put him in the mayor's office, that it put a black man there long before anyone would have predicted. I also think that it led to voters probably rejecting one of the best, uh, certainly one of the better, if not the best mayor that I thought this city had ever had, and David Vann. It created a time of, time of change. Uh, the man who for years stood as a lone voice against police brutality in Birmingham, who still maintains he had no ambition to be mayor, was suddenly, historically, in position to change the city. Among the first things Arrington did was to reach out to his old friend David Vann, who had burned a lot of bridges at the big law firms downtown. Now, of course, David and Dick remained good friends, uh, and Dick extended to David a job so he could live uh, and make money for his family. It's another long story, but together the two worked to annex a portion of property a long way from downtown, a controversial long lasso plan developed by Van and carried out by Arrington that keeps the city afloat to this day. On that property was built the Summit, the most successful upscale shopping district in the whole metro area. David came up with the annexation scheme, and that's what it was, a scheme. The, the scheme is, <clears throat> under the annexation laws, you have to have contiguous property next to, the property has to touch your property that you annex, okay? That means, that's what contiguous means. And uh, a lawsuit or a, a, a law decision at some point in the, back in the 60s uh, said that you could use roads as those lines. And so by following the road and the streets, we were able to grab up unincorporated land outside the city limits of Birmingham that were not contiguous to the city, but we made them contiguous, uh, like down 280, like down uh, Lakeshore Parkway. All that was just unincorporated property. Now it's all city of Birmingham and making a tremendous amount of sales taxes that helps the city. It was a final parting shot for a mayor ousted by the city's racial divide, and it was Vintage Van. He armed himself with the law, reached through wealthy white suburbs that had abandoned black Birmingham because of race, and took the most valuable commercial property he could find. His city claims it still. Solomon Crenshaw, that veteran Birmingham reporter who found himself at the scene of the Benita Carter riots when he was just an intern all those years ago, looks back on the events he witnessed in the 79 election with a sort of wonder. Uh, I used to say to myself that Richard Arrington should have made a pilgrimage to her grave every year that he was in office because had that event not happened, he would not have been mayor, at least not then. Uh, I don't know when, if ever, he would have been, but without a doubt, that put the situation and put the elements in place because he and, and David Vann had been allies. They had been friends. He would, I don't think he would have run against David Vann, and David Vann had been viewed as an ally to people of color. And frankly, I don't think anybody, black or white, believed that a black man could win a citywide election for mayor in Birmingham, Alabama. 
I just don't think it was conceivable. In a sense, Arrington did make such a pilgrimage last year. In 2019, 40 years after Benita Carter died in Buster Pickett's car, the city's first black mayor stood at the corner of 45th Street in what used to be 10th Avenue North, the street now bearing his name for reasons that should be clear. He stood at the spot where Benita died, and to the crowd that included members of Benita's family, he spoke of what her life meant. And it is so important that we understand that, especially that our young people understand Benita Carter. And let me lastly say, the Benita Carter incident reformed one of the nation's most vile and abusive police departments. The police foundation had issued a report and it talked about particularly three cities, Baltimore, Detroit, and Birmingham, for a very abusive police department. We, the Benita Carter incident, led us to reform our police department. Our police department would become an accredited police department. At that time, it was only it was one of only 60 accredited police departments in the entire uh, nation of Birmingham. That's a part of the Bonita Carter legacy. So let me close by saying this to you. You know, some events in history, we simply say they are attributed to time. You know, we said, well, it was by time. It was going to happen anyway. I say that sometimes myself. Sometimes people say, well, you know, how... Uh, how did you do that, man? How did you get to be the mayor? I said, well, you know, it was just time. It's going to happen in time. Well, that's not always true. Time can be so neutral. It's what you do with time that matters. And that is what's important about the Benita Carter incident. Some events in history are attributed to some particular event that took place. I think Birmingham's transition to a better city began with the death of Anita Khan. Thank you. Traveling down two different roads Arrington was mayor of Birmingham, its first black mayor, and it would be on him to fulfill all his promises to reform the police department, to integrate it thoroughly, to deal with George Sands and give black people the voice they had never had. Join us next time to meet Sands himself and see what it was that this mayor did with his time. Hello, is this Mr. George Sands? Yeah, it's Gowler.
Unjustifiable is a podcast from Reckon Radio. It was written and created by me, John Archibald, and co-hosted by Roy S. Johnson. And it was produced and edited by me, Alexander Ritchie. Additional production by Amy Yerkinen and Marsha Oglesby. Our executive producer is John Hammondtree. Original theme music was written and performed by Thad Saji, Austin Motlow, David Marsh, and Danny Ray Wilkerson, Jr. Additional music contributed by Jeremy Smith. Special thanks to Sun Ra for music from the Haverford solo in Prompt 2, Number 2, and to the late, great, funky Donnie Fritz for his song, Lay It Down, and to Reed Watson and Ben Tenner at Single Lock Records up in the Shoals. Special thanks to Jim Baggett, the Birmingham Public Library, Ramsey Archibald, R.L. Nave, Jonathan Soboleski, Kelly Scott, Uche Bean, Nathaniel Bagley, Dick Arrington, T.K. Thorne, Richard Mock, Bruce Wright, City of Birmingham, Brian Burghardt of Fatal Encounters, the friends and family of Benita Carter, Birmingham News, Solomon Crenshaw, and all those people who have worked to make justice more equitable. <laughs>